0: All right, well, good morning. Hope you guys have uh, enjoyed this amazing weather uh, this weekend. It's just been beautiful. I uh, love being outside with my family, and um, so excited to get to worship today uh, and be together with our Lord and Savior Jesus. We have been going through a series in Romans. Uh, we're going to continue in that series this morning, so if you're new, if this is your first time, I want to encourage you to jump in on Romans with us, and we have Bibles in the seatbacks near you. You want to grab one of those? You can open that up to Romans chapter 3, or if you want to open that up on your phone, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, as, you're, uh, as you're turning there, I, um, uh, in college, I was an English major, so I, I got really into Shakespeare, uh, so don't judge me. I love Shakespeare. Uh, I'll own it. And it was just really, I remember Hamlet, first time reading Hamlet, just blew me away. Uh, And uh, another of uh, Shakespeare's greatest works is a play called Macbeth. How many of you guys have seen Macbeth before performed? Okay, great, okay, awesome. Uh, If you haven't, I highly encourage you to see it. Uh, It is uh, one of the more um, disturbing uh, and powerful uh, plays that Shakespeare wrote. And if you you haven't seen it, it's basically the story uh, of a husband and wife who they go and see these three witches? Always a bad start to any play. And they get a, a prophecy. There's a prophecy that's explained to them, and it says basically, "You, Macbeth, will become the king." And so, in their ambition uh, to fulfill this prophecy, they basically take matters into their own hands, and they kill the king. And so, Macbeth becomes uh, the king. But then there's a the problem, and this is what gets worked out through the play. There's this problem. They are racked with guilt for what they've done. And Lady Macbeth, in particular, his wife, begins to have these dreams, and she's she's sleepwalking, and she's having these hallucinations. And um, it's because she's having these like, dreams and hallucinations that the king's blood is literally on her hands. She keeps imagining she's, she's, she's got his blood. And, and what happens is she's trying to remove these imaginary blood stains. And so it, it leads to these uh, famous words. Maybe you've heard these words. If you've heard something quoted from Gabeth, it might be this Out, damned spot. Out, I say. What need we fear who knows it when none can call our power to account? Yet who would have thought the old man to have so much blood in him? You ever heard that quoted? Yeah. Out damned spot. Right, Uh, And no matter how hard she tries, she can't get the blood off. She can't remove the stain. She can't wash away her guilt. Uh, A few years ago, David Brooks, who writes for the the New York Times, wrote an article that was entitled The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Uh, I highly encourage you to check it out if you can, but he he wrote in there, he said, this about our cultural moment and guilt. He said, religion may be on the retreat, but guilt seems as powerfully present as ever. People have a sense of guilt and sin but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy or grace or forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. Sin, he says, is a stain, a weight, a debt. And he goes on to argue that one of the ways that we in our cultural moment, I think we've seen this more and more. He wrote this like four years ago, only become more true. He says one of the ways our culture has been trying to work through dealing with this situation, our guilt, is through creating a culture of victimhood. People know there's something wrong, right? They, they know there's something wrong, and the way they deal with it without God in the picture is to say, well, something's wrong, and it must be someone's fault, and it must be this person's fault, or it must be this group's fault. And so it's created this kind of method of denial at a cultural level. And so, he, he, with, you know, with Macbeth and our culture, kind of just... Putting all that together, here's what I would say. Here's the truth. The truth is we can try to live as if there's no God. Uh, Like Macbeth or even like our culture, we can try to kill the king, as it were. But what we can't do is we cannot escape the guilt. We cannot escape the guilt. We cannot wash the stain of sin off of our souls. And as we've been reading Romans chapter 1 through 3, this is exactly where Paul has brought us to that realization. We find ourselves at the end of his chapter 3, verse 20, where we stopped last week, in this moment where we are confronted with our sin and that we stand rightly condemned and that we are hopeless in our sin. And basically, if this was a movie, it would fade to black in verse 20. And then, Paul writes verse 21. But now, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. But now, it's supposed to hit us One through three, darkness, despair, condemnation, hopelessness. What can we do? But now, but now God has intervened. But now light shines in the darkness. But now morning has come. But now there is hope. Now the righteousness of God, he says, has been revealed, revealed, manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Wonderful. We've had three, four weeks of bad news. This is the good news, okay? You made it to 321. Uh, It's been bad news. This is the good news. Wonderful. Great. We're so pumped, right? Righteousness of God. You guys excited about the righteousness of God? Yeah. What's the righteousness of God? What does that mean? Right? I think that's the question we end up with. Okay, man, I'm excited about the righteousness of God, but what does that mean? What does that mean to say the righteousness of God? What is Paul getting at? And so that's what I want us to talk about this morning. We're gonna focus on 21 through 25 and just really try to get around this idea of what is the righteousness of God? Because for Paul, this changes everything. This is the good news. This is the but now, the righteousness of God. Now, the truth is we could spend weeks Weeks upon weeks upon weeks looking at this idea in the Bible of the righteousness of God. I want to try to sum it up in one sentence, okay? So if we could sum up what the righteousness of God is, I would say it's several things all at once. It's several things all at once. One, it's God's right moral character. So we kind of get the sense of that when we say that God is righteous, So the righteousness of God is pointing us to his right moral character. The second thing is that it's God's right act or action to save us. So righteousness and salvation work together. That's how God works out our salvation. And then the third is that there's this gift of God making us right with him. So in other words, God's righteousness is three things. It's his right character. It's his right action to save us. And it's him working to bring us into right relationship with him. So whenever you see righteousness of God, you can kind of think in those terms, right? Right character, right action, right relationship. So is that helpful? Okay. Because when I read that righteousness of God, I needed, I needed to do some work, <laughs> okay? Because these are the kind of words that we kind of come across in scripture. And we're like, oh yeah, the righteousness of God. And then we kind of move on. And I just want to be really careful That with these kinds of words, because there's several of these words in this passage, that we really kind of say, "Oh God, help us, Holy Spirit, help us understand what it is you're saying." Because this is good news. It's news that we need. It's news that our culture needs, and so we need to be clear about that. So I want us to talk about righteousness, uh, this good news, and it is good news. The reason righteousness, the righteousness of God, is good news, is because sin has ruined our right relationship with God. Sin has ruined our own righteousness that's given to us by God. And so we need him to make us right on the one hand and make us right with himself. And so that's what Paul is gonna help explain here in the next few verses. That's why he's gonna talk about this as the solution. It's the righteousness of God that's the solution to our sin problem. And so here he's expounding. So look at verse 22, we'll pick up there. He says this, he says, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just quick, that's a recap from one to three. Right? That's what he's already told us. He says, just as a reminder, remember, we've all fallen short. We are all sinners. Therefore, we need God's righteousness. And what do we need it for? We need it to, verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is a mouthful, Paul. <laughs> What in the world does he mean? What is he getting at? So let's unpack that. First, he says, uh, we're justified. So for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So justified, what does justified mean? So justified, think in terms of a court, uh, a court of law. Uh, it's, a, it's a forensic term, it's a, it's a legal term, justified. Uh, and think in terms of, uh, there's a trial. There's been a big trial going on, and the, the accused now stands before the judge, you know, orange jumpsuit and all that stuff, to hear the sentencing. This is a sentencing moment, and the judge stands before uh, this person, or this person stands before the judge, and the judge issues a verdict for their heinous crimes. That's this moment. That's what Justified is talking about. The Bible teaches that God is the just judge, and that we are the guilty offender in that scenario, and that God has every right to judge us, to issue a judgment on our sin and our evil. But this is where Paul blows us away. The judge does something totally unexpected in this moment. What the judge does is he justifies us freely. In other words, in this moment, the judge does something nuts. He says to the guilty, the one who is worthy of punishment, he says, I pardon you, and not only do I pardon you, I declare you innocent. He doesn't just spare us, in other words, he actually declares that we are right with him. So, in other words, we're justified, and the way we're justified, he says, is by grace. What does that mean, that we're justified by grace? Verse 24, fundamental to the gospel is that we have been saved by God's grace. In the original language of the New Testament, in the Greek, the word uh, for uh, grace is charis. And in uh, everyday ancient Greek, that word meant gift. It just could be used as kind of a gift or a blessing. But in Scripture, it takes on this uh, additional meaning. Charis has this greater meaning. It means the perfect gift uh, that we can never be worthy of receiving. That's what grace is, it's a perfect gift from God that we could never be worthy of receiving, something we receive, but we could never earn. We can never be worthy of God's mercy, his salvation, his justification, his love, his righteousness, and so I just wanna say, maybe that's the news to you, maybe you haven't grown up hearing that as part of the gospel, that you can't actually earn God's favor. You can't, you can't earn his favor, you can't earn his love. For many of us, I would say that's not news. However, if you're anything like me, there's times where I know that, but functionally, I'm not living by that truth, that grace. And I think that's where the challenge may be for most of us in the room, is we still get caught up in trying to make ourselves worthy of the Lord. I heard someone describe... um, kind of this temptation this way, that sometimes we tend to think of God saving us like he's saving a drowning person. I think I've used this analogy before, but I find it so helpful. Like God saving me is like him saving someone who's just uh, who's tossed about, desperately thrashing about in the sea of our own sin. And thankfully, you know, the USS Jesus comes cruising along and he throws out a lifeline and says, hey, I got you. Right? And he saves us and he kind of pulls us onto the ship. Maybe he does some some of this, you know, some just, hey, okay, you're good, you're good. Resuscitates us. We're good. But here's the trick. That's not what the gospel teaches. That's not what the gospel actually teaches. What the gospel teaches is that we are not treading water and keeping our heads above the sea. We're actually at the bottom of the sea, drowned and cold and dead. And what happens in the incarnation is Jesus Christ himself dives into the sea of our sin. And he goes to the bottom and he resurrects us. He doesn't resuscitate us. He resurrects us and gives us new life. And so salvation is a grace. There's nothing. There's no part that we play in that sense. There's nothing we can do. It is a gift. It is not us meeting God halfway It's the love of God and the life of God being worked out in us, through us, without any conditions and completely undeservedly. It is by grace. It is by grace. Paul goes on from there, talking about justified by grace as a gift. In verse 24, he says, we are made righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So he's just building, stacking these things up. So, okay, what does that mean, that we are made righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus? How does a righteous God, this is the question that's trying to answer, how does a righteous God redeem or make righteous the unrighteous without compromising his own righteousness on the one hand or condoning that unrighteousness on the other? So again, think about this like a court system. Innocent people are declared to be innocent in a just system, right? A just court system says innocent people are innocent and guilty people are guilty. That's what we expect. It's the definition of injustice, in other words, to call a guilty person innocent. And yet, in just a few verses, that's exactly what Paul is going to say God has done. God, in verse chapter 4, verse 5, justifies not the innocent, but the wicked. God justifies the wicked. God says the guilty are declared innocent? Now, maybe we're so used to kind of hearing that. Oh, yeah, cool. Way to go, God. But I think if we really understood really wrestle with this we would not say cool because if we're honest we don't like that we don't like that and maybe to kind of help us wrestle with this think about it this way if someone murdered someone in your life that you love right and they went and appeared before a judge and that judge looked at that guilty defendant and they said you know what I declare you innocent You are justified. You are free to go. No one in this room would feel okay with that. No one. Few things upset us more than when guilty people go unpunished. And yet, that's exactly what Paul says. God justifies the wicked. What it does is it makes God sound immoral. How can God do this? How can he declare the wicked are justified? And, and, and if you were working this out, you might come to the question or you might kind of begin to wrestle with this. Well, he's God, can't he just forgive us? I've asked that, maybe you've asked that, maybe friends have asked you, why, you know, can't God just forgive us? He's God. And the answer is no. He cannot just forgive us. That's not limiting God. That's God being consistent with who God is. He can't just forgive us any more than a murderer should just go free. It's not just. And so the question then that we're faced with is how? how, Lord, how can you forgive? How can God forgive? And the answer is the cross. That's why the cross matters so much. How can God forgive? God can forgive because of the cross. Without the cross, the justification of the unjust is immoral. The only reason God justifies the guilty sinner is that Christ died for the guilty sinner. Because he shed his blood in a sacrificial death for me and for you and for every sinner, God is able to declare those who believe in his son free and forgiven, innocent, free from sin and right with him because of the cross. In other words, Jesus takes our place when When we are supposed to stand before the judge, he takes our place, he stands accused of our crime, he accepts the judgment for our sin, and he satisfies the just punishment of a just God, the punishment we deserve. Paul then goes on to say, this same God has put forward by uh, his son the propitiation of his blood. Whom God put forward, it says, as a propitiation by his blood. Again, what do these words mean? <clears throat> propitiation. Propitiation is the ancient idea of placating someone's anger. So another word might be appeasement. So appeasing God by the blood of Jesus. That sounds off. Off. What Paul's doing is he's talking in terms of how pagan worshipers would have often tried to appease the gods they worshiped by shedding blood, sometimes animal, sometimes human. And by contrast, what he's saying is God is not like those bad-tempered, moody, easily offended gods that pagans worship. God is a completely different kind of God. He rightly is responding to sin and evil with wrath and judgment. And we could never appease that. There's nothing we can do to appease that, to placate, to respond, in other words, to the anger of God. But this is what God does because he's God. He's a completely different kind of God. He's done for us what we could never do for ourselves. He puts forward or he sends his own son to die in our place. Out of love for me and for you, God satisfies his own wrath. Through the giving of his own son and that his son Jesus willingly then lays down his life in obedience to the father by dying on the cross so when we encounter the cross we're in lent we're making our way to the cross when we come to the cross it should break our hearts what God has done for us it should soften our hard hearts It should move us to respond with love and gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus on the cross. This is what he's done. This is what he's done. It's a gift. It's by grace. He saved us. It's the righteousness of God. What a gift. What a gift. And so how do we receive this gift? It's the last little thing Paul adds there. He adds this little phrase, to be received by faith. To be received by faith. Paul says faith several times. I think there's like five or six times he points to faith in these few verses. And he wants us to see that God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's faith. We are saved and made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You might have heard these called the solas. There's five of them, for the glory of God and by Scripture alone, by the Word of God alone. But These uh, point us to this great truth, the, the sola fide, the faith alone. That's the response that we offer to what God has done for us. We are saved and made right with God by grace through faith alone in Christ. And the scandal of the gospel is that everything God has done for us, everything that I just described, all these incredible truths, these great promises, all in Scripture, everything that's pointing to Jesus, all that we can receive by faith. By faith. Not by working through a checklist, not through magic words or special laws or rituals or anything else our human minds can come up with. It is through faith. By grace through faith in Jesus. Now, it's easy, I think, for us to get tripped up here when we think about faith. So faith, um, we can tend to think about faith as kind of mental assent or agreement with truths about or facts about Jesus, for example. Um, But faith is more, so much more than believing the right things. It's not just about believing the right doctrines. It's not about just doing the right things. It's a whole life reorientation to Jesus. That's what faith is. It's it's devotion might be a helpful word to think about what faith is. That's why John Calvin said, Christians are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which remains alone. Salvation is a gift from God. So incredible, so amazing. This gift, it demands a whole life response from us a whole life response, a life born of faith and lived by faith in Christ. And that's what makes Christianity utterly unique, like no other religion or philosophical system in the world. Faith in all other religions and philosophies is a means by which you get to God. It's a means by which you get to God. It's, it's, it's ascending the proverbial mountain to God. Right? Faith becomes a work then. It becomes this means of self-salvation through some kind of human effort. But in Christianity, the good news is we worship a God of grace. We worship a God of grace. And the righteousness of God, this new life with God, now and forever, it is a gift. It's a gift, a gift that we receive in faith. So I just wanna close with two quick thoughts about what all this means for us. And one's personal and one's communal. So personal, I just want to ask all of us to consider this question. Do you know God's grace in your life? Do you know God's grace in your life? Not have you grown up in the church? Not have you been baptized? Not are you going to a Bible study? Do you know God's grace in your life? If not, how long will you allow yourself to be haunted by your guilt and shame before you come to the realization there's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy? There's nothing you can do. What you need is God's grace to free you from the power of sin in your life. He loves you and he wants to free you. And so do you know that grace? Do you know that gift? In Christ, you can experience for the first time in your life what it means to be worthy. Worthy to be known, worthy to be loved, and accepted, worthy of forgiveness. You will never feel worthy. Be worthy apart from grace through faith in Christ. So turn from sin, from living life without God, and say to him, I trust you. I trust you, Christ Jesus. So, Personal word, second, communal. What is a community of grace? I encourage all of us to ask that question when we think about apostles. What does it look like for us to be a community of grace? Grace is powerful in a community. It is powerful because it kicks down all the walls that we set up between one another to try to build up our own worth, right? But if we're, we know we're saved by grace, if we experience grace, whether it's, Whatever the barriers we set up, whether it's power or money or social class or race or ethnicity, on and on. Whatever identity we're trying to find our worth in, apart from Christ, grace has the power to demolish it. And that's where the world is is looking um, for something that's different. It's looking for the church to be something different and to feel totally different than anything else in our culture. Because it should be marked by grace. It should totally confuse the world when it looks at the church. Apostles should look like this strange mix of people who share life together and sacrificially serve one another and encourage one another and love one another so that the only way to explain this group of people right here being in the same room right, is because of Jesus Christ, because of his grace. And so praise God, we've experienced that and we want more of that, we want more grace. You know, in the early church, Christians were known for breaking barriers, gender barriers, economic barriers, ethnic barriers. And people didn't understand it and they thought the church was strange. It was weird. The church was bizarre. And today's church is not weird enough. We're not strange enough, right? We need to be more strange. We have rich churches and poor churches. We have black churches and white churches. We have liberal churches, conservative churches. You know what that sounds like? Sounds like the way the world works. Split it all up. Clump together with people that kind of look like me and do what I do and vote like me. There's always a temptation to drift in that direction. We have to fight that temptation. Because our worth is not based on those things. It's based on Christ and the cross. And that frees us to love people without condition, just as we are loved. So, that's a huge problem. You may be saying, yeah, David, I, I get that. That's a big problem in the church. Uh, what can we do? I think we're doing it. I think we're doing it. We need to continue to do it. But here's, what I would say, one practical thing that we can do as a church, and it would be to consider this question, who eats at your table? It's a simple question. Who eats at your table? Um, when you have folks over for dinner, who are they? What do they look like? Do they look like you? Are they in the same social and economic strata as you? Is it people who vote like you, think like you? Or is it a mix? Are you connecting with people that there's no other explanation for why they're at your table other than Jesus? Same thing goes for this table. When we gather here, there's no other explanation for why we gather around this table together other than Jesus. And so that is the picture that grace can give to the world a testimony of the world of how radical grace, the radical grace of Jesus defines us and not any other category of worth but Jesus. It should be a picture of the righteousness of God to the world, amen? Amen, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, um, we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ or that it is not of ourselves, We have nothing to boast about. But it is a gift. It is a gift that you have given us, that you might call us worthy as your sons and daughters, that we might be called your church. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would know that grace and we would know what it means, Lord, to to hear the good news of the righteousness of God. And Lord, I pray as a community, you would continue to form and shape us as a people of grace. Lord, I thank you for the manifestations of grace around tables in this community. And Lord, we pray for more. We pray that you would draw us together in Christ, and that might stand as a powerful and faithful witness of what you and only you can do by your grace and by your Son. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.